I feel like today's podcast deserves a little bit of an introduction before we even get started, and I just wanted to take a minute to say I'm truly appreciative and I consider myself fortunate. I absolutely never intended on being in a position that I find myself in, and those of us with Team South Florida, we've said this before, sometimes tragic times, tragic circumstances, tragic events unite us, bring us together, introduce us, and we can truly turn tragedy into triumph, which is the title of this episode that you're about to hear. The title came almost instantly from Bev, who I had the privilege and honor of speaking with today, and you're about to hear a very candid, raw, direct, open, and honest dialogue. Quite frankly, the type of dialogue that, if it happened more, would, in my honest opinion, benefit every single one of us in this profession, our families, our friends, our loved ones, and our peers. So, I just want to emphasize that this podcast really struck the core. It was a little bit difficult, yet powerful, yet moving, and society is better because of people like Bev. The honesty, the courage, the bravery to sit back and look at yourself in the mirror and then decide, you know what, I'm going to do something about the card I was dealt. So without further ado, present to you episode five, Triumph Over Tragedy. Thank you again, Bev. The job. The stress. We are, there is an active shooter working at Douglas. Multiple gunshots are being fired. Politics. Politics. Pressure. Pressure. We got a guy with a long rifle. We don't know where the hell he's at. Fear. Survival. Control 765, I need the radio for a minute. Be advised, we are taking fire from a very high floor. We believe it's possibly coming from the Mandalay Bay. And we get it. And we have to do better. The truth behind the badge. Presented by the Team South Florida Law Enforcement Charity. All right, good morning. This is Rich from Team South Florida with another podcast episode. And today I'm joined by Bev. Thank you for joining me today. Rich, thank you. <laughs> we're here, finally. We're here, finally. <laughs> All right. I wish we could say that we're going to have an episode where it's not powerful, emotional, or just intense. But other than our member introductions, which have their own attributes, we just don't seem to be having it because we're very fortunate to have guests like you and we're not afraid to talk about topics that, quite frankly, need to be discussed. So I just want to thank you for joining us, and maybe you could just give a brief introduction on who you are and what your story is. Oh, thank you. Oh. So before we start, I hope it's okay with you. Can we do some breathing? Absolutely. Can we just do some breathing? Sure. Okay, so I'm just going to ask that you just kind of relax your shoulders as much as you can, and if you you're comfortable with closing your eyes, close your eyes, 
If not, you just take a downward gaze. And I'd like for you to just take a deep breath in through your nose and out through your mouth. Again, in through your nose and out through your mouth. Just keeping our eyes closed, I want you to just relax your jaw, relax your eyebrows, just really set the intention for this interview to not only be educative, but also to bring awareness to some topics that need to be discussed and also to have fun. Just take another deep breath in through our nose. Hold it at the top and smile and breathe out. When you're ready, just come back open your eyes all right now that you got me all relaxed I'm ready <laughs> to shake take it a off. nap I'm ready to go to sleep i always like to start off anything <laughs> that i do with just like take a mindful breath before we dig into whatever we're about to dig into so thank you for indulging me thank you for the surprise <laughs> i wasn't expecting that good yes it worked okay um so as far as introductions my name is bev bev perez and i am quote unquote, I say that lightly, retired from the Prince George's County Police Department. Um, I did 10 years until I was retired about March, uh, about 2017. And it was due to a shooting that I was involved in. Um, but I guess we will discuss that a little bit later. Now I'm here living in Broward County and bringing forth the awareness and attention to mental health amongst first responders and their families. So I'm happy to be here. Thank you, Team South Florida. Thank you, Rich, for having me. Well, I think we're very fortunate to have you, and I'm just very appreciative because you bring a wealth of experience. And one of the things that we're lucky to do, I don't know if I would say the word luck, but sometimes it's uh, people in the right place at the right time for the right reasons we go through traumatic experiences and things happen to us. And in turn, we can take those experiences that are very negative and help people and turn them into a positive. And I know firsthand from talking to you, from referring you to some people, that you're doing just that. So you're the one that uh, we as an organization want to say thank you to. Thank you. Um, how would you say, we'll just dig right into this and we'll jump right in. When I say things like peer support or working together or emotional well-being, emotional health, in my experience as a police officer, I would say that these vary greatly by agency. And without identifying one specific agency by name, what has been your experience? What comes to mind when you say things like that? Oh, it's heavy. <laughs> okay. Um well, from personal experience, unfortunately, I, looking back at it now, I'm aware of the fact that it was nothing personal on me. It wasn't a personal attack on me. Anything that happened after my incident, um, I do not take it personally. But what I do realize now that it was a, a lack of awareness, a lack of education, and a lack of compassion. Um, and I just say that from my personal experience with what I went through at my agency. 
Um, as far as other agencies, I haven't been to all of them, of course, but with some that I've been to, I still see, I'm happy to see that there's peer support teams, but what I want to see more of is not just throwing that label on top of your name and saying, yeah, I'm on the peer support team. It's like, okay, but what does that really mean? So that's what I really want to get into. It's like, okay, if you're going to be peer support, be peer support. And on top of that, what are you doing for your self-care to take on that role? Because that's tough. So for me, it's really important to just know for yourself that you're taking on this role, not just as a day off from training or not just as easy, you know, put on my resume. I was on the peer support team, but to really take on the role and be there for your brethren when they need you and recognizing when you see one of us or see one of them retired or not or sworn, when you see them distancing, when you see them acting differently, they ask that question, go up to them, like, Hey, are you okay? And you know how people always say, yeah, I'm fine. Like, Hey man, how you doing? I'm good. Yeah, I'm fine. No, Rich, how are you doing? You know, and really digging in, realizing, like, I, I've noticed some stuff, man. You're distancing yourself or, you know, you're self-medicating, whatever it is. And really being that peer support. Um, because I think that one thing that we need to do that I heard at a training that I went to is to be more than one-dimensional. You know, I wasn't just Officer Perez. I was a daughter. Yeah, I am a daughter. I'm an auntie. You know, I'm, I'm more than just the badge. And we need to realize that we're human we're human, you know, whatever your, your personal life is, that's what it is. And to be multidimensional and not be so one dimensional as an officer, both sworn and retired. So peer support takes on a heavy weight. And I really want agencies everywhere to recognize that that's just not a title to just take on because, you know, like I said, it gives you a free day off of training, but really be there for each other. We are, we're all we got. <laughs> See, that's heavy because you, you touched on quite a bit there. Um, I, I would absolutely agree with you. And, man, you, you hit on a couple of things here. With peer support, it sounds, and I would agree with you, it sounds like it's not so much the burden on the police department or the sheriff's office or administration of the agency as much as it is 50-50. It's a give and take. It's on the person that's willing to sign up to get that title, understanding what they're signing up for and agreeing to be there. And it's on the agency to have some sort of system in place with guidelines or guidance, maybe some expectations, if you will. Yes. And, and here's what we want to accomplish, and yes. we have the right people accomplishing this. Is that fair to say? Yes. And to change the culture, change the nature of it, right? Because some agencies may or may not have peer support. I feel that peer support is important in every agency. I think, yes, it's a plus. But to actually make it something, you know, just like how we're police officers and, you know, we go to the range to qualify. We drive, we do our driving, we do our in-service. Make peer support that important too. Make it a qualified, like you need to qualify to be a part of us. Like this is really like a, a thing because... What happened to me during my after my incident is I felt like I was just being checked off of a list of things to do after you're involved in this type of an incident. Disingenuine. Yes. And I at no moment it didn't feel human. Um, and I do feel that they tried. And again, I don't take it personal. And, I, you know, I'll say it now, you know, it, it, you know, my guys, they tried. Everybody did the best that they could at no rough time. But it at the time was not just it didn't help 
unfortunately for me. See, what's nice with you and being so candid is when we have these difficult conversations, I think, obviously not being a part of administration or command staff, I can't speak for that from that perspective. But what we've heard from some members of command staff, it's almost like a defensive tone, almost like a, a bashing the agency or a bashing of administration. And when I talk to you and listen to you, you're not here saying screw this or screw that. You, you said it yourself. You, you don't take it personal and you're not mad at the agency. You think they just didn't know. Correct. And I wonder how common that is, how widespread that is. I think that for me, it's it's a lot, and I think for everyone, this is just something that everyone should take on. It is much easier to look at things in a different view and try to see what did what do I need to take away? What was the learning point from this whole entire experience versus getting upset, getting mad, and staying in that space? Staying in that space only hurts you. <laughs> so you're not even you're not making your situation better by thinking that, oh, they did this to me because of this, because of me, because I'm this, because I did that. It's not about you. They literally don't know what, how to do or what to do in this situation. And I realized that with my situation because I remember asking a sergeant, why, why are they treating me like this? Like, what did I do? Like me, you know, I, I took it like, what did I do? And he was like, you know, Perez, you got to really look at it. Like, we've never had something like this happen. Not only... Maybe I should share my journey first so that it's a better understanding. I, I don't want to put you through it, but maybe no, maybe no, no. a summary it's, of it's it. No, it's no problem because this is literally what I do. And I, I want to be as vulnerable and as open and sharing. And this is literally what I do to educate. All right. This is going to get deep. This is going to get And I always go say, ahead, you got I it. always throw out my disclaimer when I share for anyone that, you know, I am not uh, mental health, you know, I'm not a counselor. I am not, you know, a clin a clinician. So if anyone's uncomfortable, of course, you know, feel free to turn this podcast off or whatever, but come back to us in like five minutes. Yeah, please come back. <laughs> please come back <laughs> because I am aware of the fact that it can get a little heavy, but, um, it's a lot to take away. And the timing couldn't have been more, I guess, perfect uh, because, my incident happened on March 13 on 2016 and essentially I was a senior corporal on a squad and there was a you know how we are when you're on the squad you're all on a group chat or whatever and so I'm on a group chat with for all the, my for the record I'm not going to acknowledge that <laughs> you know <laughs> oh, go ahead. I'm, on, you. I'm on a group <laughs> chat with all my you know with all my guys or whatever and the conversation is going and one of them decides to text me separate from the group chat and um his name was jakai he was uh, like the rookie on the squad so he starts texting me on the side and i'm just like dude like no don't text me on the side like we're on a group chat what and he starts kind of like flirting with me and i was not entertaining it so many flags for me, especially having at the time I had seven, eight years on, I had been fully aware of the fact that I did not want to date a police officer for so many reasons. One, because I am one. Two, because if you date one and you break up with one, you're probably going to date another one. And now you kind of look like that female officer. And I never wanted to give off that vibe. And three, because of the main fact, which is we get hurt. Um, you know, it's dangerous. So it was just a lot of things. Needless to say, one day he calls me, Jakai calls me and he's like, hey, do you want to go to the range? 
Now, this was obviously something that I was not going to say no to because it's a benefit to not just our squad, but our community and to him. So I'm like, yeah, of course, let's do it. So we go to the range. We shot a couple rounds. After that, he's like, so what are you about to do? And I'm like, I'm going home. And he's like, do you want to go grab something to eat? I'm like, of course I want to go grab something to eat. <laughs> I look like. So we went to go get something to eat, and that's where the story began. So um, I'm like a senior corporal on this squad, and he at the time was like a rookie. So we kept it very quiet. We didn't want anybody to know. We started dating. Um, things started to get a bit serious. And not even, I think he had about, geez, like maybe a year or so, a year and a couple of months in. And he had always had interest in going into like the narcotics. He wanted to really get involved in that world. Um, so into our narcotics enforcement team. Uh, division so he ends up applying for the position and getting it very early on in his career um you know that was unexpected but he was just so good at what he did so he ends up getting into the narcotics enforcement division at which point people kind of just started finding out that we were together it was no longer a secret because now he's in a whole different you know division and it just it doesn't matter um so during that time, as I said, I'm going to be very vulnerable and very open with you. I had a DUI and it was on the news and I remember my family seeing it. It was so embarrassing. And this is just, and I say, and I share this part of me because this is who and what I was doing, thinking that I was fine. No, I'm, I'm okay. Nothing's wrong with me. I had already been dealing with post-traumatic stress at that point, not even realizing it. Just from things on the job. From things on the job. Right. Just from things on the job. Where, where I worked it, from things on the job. And that's one of the things we say, not to cut you off, but just mm. doing this, being in this profession for any period of time, you are going to see things that are not normal to see. So I'm glad you brought that up. It's true, man. And so what did I do? The, I abused the only substance I could. And still, oh, no, I'm fine. There's nothing wrong with me. So I ended up getting, it was, I was in my, I was in my personal vehicle. It was on 95 and a state trooper stops me. And I begged and plead. I was like, please don't do this. Like, I'm a police officer. Don't do this. Don't do it. He did not care. And not that he didn't care. I'm, you know, it's just he did what he had to do. I'm not mad at him. He did what he had to do. So what ended up happening with that, Jakai was with me through that entire process. Um, I remember that being a really tough time with for me. And I ended up getting demoted from senior corporal, corporal to a PFC, police officer first class, right above a PO. A police officer so I got demoted and I got transferred um, needless to say things with him stayed you know we stayed together we had our ups and downs but we stayed together and on March 13 2016 he had an assignment they had a warrant him and his guys it was a Sunday so he was only going in for overtime this guy worked every overtime opportunity he could and I was like babe please don't go don't go but he went he ends up going and at the time I was working, they had put me on a special assignment at our headquarters. So I was going there and he was going to his assignment. We had ordered some food and I said to him, hey, you know, on your way down, because it was passing my the city that I was going to be working in. I was like, on your way down, can you just drop off the food? Because I had to like run an errand before going into the station for roll call. So he said, sure, no problem. The last thing I remember, it was like an amazing morning. It really just was, um, he didn't want me to go. Normally I was always the one that was like, no, don't go. Just like stay in bed for like two more minutes. No, don't go. But this time it was him. 
he never does that. He's like, babe, go to work, you know? But <laughs> this time he was like, don't go, don't go. And I'm like, dude, we're going to be late. We got to go. And he's like, no, just a, a few more minutes. Just lay here a few more minutes. And I remember him moving. He was moving into um, a house with his two friends. And he said to me, hey, um, can you do me a favor? And I was like, yeah, what's up? He was like, can you can you pack up my clothes from my apartment? Can you just pack my stuff up? And I didn't think twice about it. And I was like, yeah, sure. But also in the back of my mind, I'm like, why can't you just do it? You know, but it's almost like he knew he wasn't going to be able to do it. It was mm-hmm. weird. So a lot of things were off that morning, but they were like beautifully off. He was, you know, talking about just things that I'd always wanted to hear. And um, we leave. And the last thing I remember, he gets in his unmarked because he's undercover. He gets in his unmarked and I get in my... Um, marked cruiser and we're at the red light and he would always do this thing like the little rascals like you know like with his hands under his chin and like wave and so he's at the light he looks at me he does it and i do it back and he goes right i go left after that um i had to do something i had to drop my brother's dog off at his house and i turn on the station to the area that i'm patrolling and police radio the police radio right right. yeah and because i'm heading to roll call turning on the channel to the proper channel and i hear just commotion you just you know when you start hearing just chaos chaos it's just chaos and there's this officer and he's like send me more units send me more units and you can hear him like screaming and i'm Mm. like holy smokes what's going on and he's essentially like send me some units they're shooting at the station my first thing was holy crap like jakai's just sitting in this parking lot just sitting duck with this food in his hand not knowing that there's something going on. So what ended up happening is that there was these um, gentlemen, they're called the Ford Ford brothers. It's like three of them. We've dealt with them before. The county had dealt with them before. They had mental health issues. Um, one of them decided he wanted suicide by cop. So he decided to approach the police station and just start shooting at our headquarters, which was smacked at like smack in the middle of a neighborhood residential area. So he's shooting at, the station, but also at passerbys. If you're walking or if you're a car, he's shooting at everybody. Meanwhile, mm. his two brothers are in the car recording him on on their phone. So he's doing this, and I guess one of the officers, this headquarters houses, you know, our specialty units, our chief, our detectives. I mean, it houses civilians. It houses so many people. It's our headquarters. So, of course, someone was coming out. They get fired on, and that's who was on the radio, like, start me more units. They're shooting at the station. And that's where I was heading. It's right around the corner from where my brother lives. So I end up calling Jakai immediately. And I'm like, where are you? And he's like, oh, yeah, I'm here. I'm like, get out of there. Like, get out of there. I was like, I need you to get out of there right now. He's like, what are you, what's going on? And I'm, you know, he can hear the feedback from my police radio. So I was like, they're shooting. Something is like, there's, there's an active shooter at the police station. And I can hear him trying to kind of understand and listening to the radio. And then it was a signal 13 for us is all hands on deck. You know, everybody come from everywhere. We need help right now. I was like, babe, it's a signal 13. Get out of there. Get out of there. And as I'm turning into the street where headquarters is, I like, I start like banging on the steering wheel. Cause I'm like, where are you? And I'm like trying to like get him to answer. Cause I can't hear him no more. And then I heard like maybe like 13 13 shots as I'm turning in. I heard like 13 shots or something. I heard like 13 shots. I had my windows down. It was a rainy day. I'm in a crown Vic. I'm just trying to get there for, you know, obviously to get there for this suspect, but for him, I was like, where are you? 
And I heard after that, I turned in, I can hear him saying police. But at this point, he was on the ground. So he's like saying police trying to identify himself. Hmm. And I heard him. And I remember driving a little bit past him, but I heard him. And I remember like putting my car in reverse and trying to park at like a 45 degree angle to like shield him somehow. I remember getting my gun out and like duck walking around the car because they were still shooting at him. Yeah, and you don't even know how many suspects, where their suspects are. I I didn't know what was ahead of me. All I knew was that I needed to get him. And so hmm. I go, I go around, and I have my, I have my gun in my hand, and I remember seeing his, I remember seeing him lay there. I don't remember this part, but other people do that. I, I was shielding his body, like I threw my body on top of him. I remember holding him, you know, and I, I guess I did, and I looked up, and when I looked up and I pointed my gun to see who it was, all I saw was blue, hmm. like officers. At that point, I holstered, and I was like. Whatever. I got to take care of him now. So I'm just holding him and I'm like, where are you hurt? Where are you hurt? But all he's doing is like his eyes are just rolling back in his head. And all he's doing is saying, police, police, like that, like kind of choking. He was like choking on his blood. So I'm looking at him and I'm like, I got you. Like, you know, like I'm here. And, you know, I looked at him as he's choking, still yelling police. I looked at him and I said, baby, I got you. I got you. And I got on the radio and I was like, stop shooting at him. He's a police officer. Please stop shooting at him. And I'm just holding him. And as I'm holding him and I was like, baby, I got you. He stopped yelling police. And I I felt him. And then other officer was there and the, um, the, my cruiser was still there. The only one that was like at a 45 degree angle. And they were like, whose cruiser is that? And I'm like, it's mine. So they start taking all the stuff out of my back seat and they put him in the back seat. And I remember one of my, um, we're, we're close now and I love him so much. He's such a good, such a good dude. Uh, shout out to, to cats, man. Um, he has a beautiful family too. So I'm so happy for him, but I remember him getting in the back seat and doing chest compressions on Jakai in the back seat as I'm flying down um down the street to get to the hospital which was like a couple blocks felt like forever but i finally get to the hospital so you got back in the crown vic and you drove i got back in the crown vic and i drove him and it was raining and i'm you know you know how crown vics are man but i did not care i needed to get him there and so got him to the hospital and i remember seeing him in the trauma room and they cut his shirt open. And I just remember seeing his like stomach looking like a wave as they're trying to like, you know, bring him back. But I already knew, I mean, I felt him already. And they put me in, this is one of the things they put me in the family room. That's where we put people when we're about to tell them some really not good news. Oh, don't treat, don't treat me like this. Don't do me like this. I already know, you know, but they, they didn't know. Right. They, they put me in the family room. I fought actually was, I started hitting stuff in the hospital and kicking things. And I was like, I told him not to go. And I was taking my gun belt and my vest off and I was punching walls and equipment. And they were like, she got to get out of here. Like get her out of here. <laughs> and I remember one of my, uh, my, one of the guys in my first squad, I remember him picking me up. I mean, I was a lot smaller than this. He picks me up like nothing and takes me outside and, 
I mean, I got on my hands and knees and I was like, God, I was like, you know, I don't ask for much because I, you know, religion thing, whatever with me. But I was like, I don't ask for much, but what I am asking you, like, just take me, not him. And at the time, my mentality was like, I ain't shit, but him, not him. Went back, they tried to put me in the family room and I fought, but I sat in there and then chief came in and he was like, what do you want me to tell you? I was like, I want you to just tell me the truth, yo. Like I already just either he's going to wake up or you're going to tell me what it is, but don't sit me in here, you know? So he was like, I'm going to get some answers for you. He goes, he comes back and he holds my hand and he's like, Marion, cause that's my first name. He's like, Marion, Jakai's gone. And I lost it. And my brother was in there. I remember calling my brother. I was like, come to the hospital. Jakai's dead. Man, take a deep breath. Take some water. I don't even know what to say. It's it's tough. You, you said something before about we're human. And that's exactly it. We are human. So to even be able to survive something like that, let alone come out here and be strong and brave and courageous and talk about it and share it. I mean... We've all been through things. We've all seen some things. I'm thinking of one of the worst traumatic things I've been through, and two of them come to mind for me. And quite frankly, they don't compare to what you just described. So I I know it doesn't help you now to say that, but it's just it is powerful, powerful stuff. And and it does does help to hear that because when you go through stuff, you tend to think, that it's only happening to you. Everybody's going through something. Whether it's at my level or your it doesn't matter. It's your level of hurt, your level of trauma. Everybody's going through something. But at the time, I felt like this is why is this happening to me? Only me, you know? And you you kind of you you bubble yourself in that world and then you bubble yourself in the world of self-hate, you know, self you know, guilt, survivor's guilt. Right, and and you go through a range of Holy emotions. Smokes. Every it was emotion. So bad, man. So <clears throat> bad. And in fact, um, September of 2016, which was a couple months after, I had my I had a suicide attempt. So it was just six months later. Right. Right. Okay. And and you had that attempt, and the agency didn't. I mean, I don't want to put words out there, so correct me if I'm wrong. You didn't get the vibe that the agency necessarily turned a blind eye. They cared. They tried to help. They just didn't know how to help. Is that an accurate depiction? or? I think so. Um, like I said, I asked one of my sergeants, why are they treating me like this? Because I was already living with the fact that I couldn't save him, right? Like I couldn't save him. Almost this, like I had something to do with this how is, things happened. This, this is where... This is what comes from... What makes us different? And I can definitively tell you this from my experience. If you were to ask me when I went through the police academy or before I signed up for this, where I would be, this was this would be the last thing on my mind. But like I said earlier, sometimes we're thrown into positions and situations where I think we're where we're supposed to be. I've had the call it unfortunate, fortunate, whatever you want to say. I I don't know. I'm not very religious myself, but I believe in in something. I've had the opportunity to speak to so many officers from so many agencies with 
different seniority from new officers, from rookies to veterans. Um, not long ago, I spoke to somebody that's been a patrol officer for 22 years, 22 years. And one of the things they said was, somebody told me to call you. And at the end of the conversation, they said, I actually feel like you care. And it's nice to know after 22 years of doing this, I never had that feeling before. So I can definitively tell you where I'm going with this is one of the things that makes us different and it's not it's it's not unique it's common in this profession we always want to do more we're used to helping people we're used to fixing problems when we see something like this you're at the hospital you start blaming yourself what could i have done what should i have done how could i have prevented this how could i have fixed this and the truth is nothing i mean nothing, nothing. that's not absolutely. on you it's absolutely nothing. but so many of us put that on ourselves yes. We had the school shooting down here in South Florida. Yeah. I can't tell you how many officers mm-hmm. did not respond that beat themselves up for not being there. And don't even talk about it. Correct. There's certain things that are outside of our control. Absolutely. Um, one of the things that you mentioned that we we could do better, I get both sides to this. Uh, when they put you in the family room, I think they wanted to separate you, wanted to take you outside of the public, outside of seeing everything, but they didn't realize that that's what you do to the general public, and now they're putting you in that position. Um, I just saw a video, and I cringed. I cringed the other day. It was uh, earlier this week, as a matter of fact. Somebody shared it with us, and they were debriefing a critical incident and it was an officer involved shooting. And one of the things that they did, their protocol, I don't know, hopefully it's been addressed, but there were a couple of officers. They had their body cameras still activated. They took the officer's firearm from him. So now you're disarming that police officer who's in full uniform at the scene. They put him in the back of the police car to sit there, to take a deep breath, to not talk to anybody. Mm. I can't imagine feeling more like a suspect Mm. to be in full uniform, disarmed, and in the back of a police car, and you and I both know you can't unlock those doors. You can't open the doors from the back. So now you're... So not to compare or make it worse, but it's like I cringed when you told me about being put in the family room like that. So let me ask you this, and not to put you on the spot, but... What could they have done differently? I don't know if there is something they could have done. Um, If you're a member of command staff listening to this, if you're a detective that is responding to a hospital and they have an officer involved shooting and they have somebody very close that they work with that's in that situation, what would have helped? Surrounding yourself with positive people maybe or surrounding yourself with people you care about? What could they have done? I think what would have helped is I understand protocol. I get that. But I think what would have helped would just have been just to be human about it. Damn the protocols and the checklist, yo. Like, on top of him being my squad mate, on top of him being a a fellow police officer, that was the love of my life. Can, Can you just not right now with your protocols? I give a fuck about your protocols right now. So just to be human. Show compassion. I mean, anybody, I don't know. Everybody's different, right? Like some people, they want to know. Some people don't want to know. For the most part, from what 
I hear from just people that I just I talk to here and there or that I've just heard stories about their lives or whatever. You want to know. No, cops don't like things to be sugarcoated. You don't want just be direct. In, in trying to protect me, you're making it worse. Agreed. So they were trying to protect me by putting me in this family room. And we'll tell you soon. Everybody already knew. And if anybody knew more than anybody, it was me. He died in my arms, Rich. You think I didn't know? But I lived and I hung on to that hope that maybe, man, maybe this hospital will bring him back. Hold on, maybe. And that's what and they kept me, and then they put does. me in the family room to to make me wait to just I just rip the bandaid off with me. That's me. That's Bev Perez. I don't know about anybody else. So for me, be human. Don't put me in a little room and make me wait like how we do people. Or just don't even do don't even do people like that. Just treat just tell people what it is. Listen, do you want to know what it is? Yes. And if it gets to the point where I'm like screaming and I'm like, then bring that one person that 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 you know that I that I know or my family knows how to handle, you know, my brother would have came and probably squeezed me really tight and been like, Bev, just I'm here. And we probably would have just hugged each other and cried together. But be human. Let that out. You know, just let me be human. It was so much protocol, Rich. I don't think I got the chance to grieve Jakai until last year. Wow. Wow. Really grieve him. Mm. Really grieve him and, and understand that that wasn't my fault. I think my last really, really bad thoughts of suicide were last year on my birthday, May 9th. I really was going through a rough time. And I went through it. I went through the storm sober. I went through it. Man, I cried. I looked at myself in the mirror real deep. And I got really mad at myself for some things that I did to myself, for some thoughts that I had of myself. I hated myself. Now, but, for, the, for those that don't know, mm-hmm. you... you you got out of law enforcement. I know you said retired. Yes. I mean, you're still active as can possibly be, as you and I both <laughs> know. You. But But you got out your own self-choice. You, you basically had to get out. So I ended up getting, after the incident, um, this is another thing. I love them, but geez, man. Um, right after, they wanted to put me on death duty. So they called me into the station. I didn't think anything was wrong with me until I walked into the station. And I remembered me working the desk one midnight and Jakai coming in to visit me. And I just like, I saw, like, I just saw him. I felt him. And then I heard the feedback from like the radio that they had just, you know, officers are walking around the uniform, seeing officers, hearing the radio made me sick. And I didn't know why. And I just, I immediately started throwing up. I couldn't last in there. So I ended up leaving there and I ended up realizing like, I can't not right now. I can't go on death duty. I don't want to be around police. I don't want to be around a police station. Station, anything. I don't want it right now. I can't right now. I didn't want to see a cruiser. So what ended up happening is um, I ended up filing for workman's comp. And I ended up getting that. And after about, I want to say like a year of not working, there's only but so long that you can stay on an agency without working that they have to either terminate you you resign or they retire you so they ended up getting me evaluated and they determined by several doctors that i have post-traumatic stress i have severe depression anxiety panic attacks all this this plethora of things they put all the perks of police work yeah Uh, they the (laughs) the words i had it all so i was like okay um so what ended up happening is that they ended up determining that i am unfit for duty and so they sent out unbeknownst to me one of my one of my really good friends, she screenshotted an email 
And I realized I could no longer access the county email. Oh, my gosh. And she sends me this message. And I'm like, what is this? And it was the email that they sent of the officers that had been separated for that month. And it was a year later. It was, I don't know what month. And my name was on there. And I was like, what? And you didn't even know? I didn't even know. And it said on the, and it had um, <laughs> wow. on the bottom, it said, uh, denote uh, that the ones with the star are retired. And I had a star by my name. I'm like, so I'm retired? <laughs> okay like but, but, but wait a minute but why how what's going on like i understand like you know i i may never come back to the job but can we talk about this and what ended up happening is i moved to um el salvador which is where my family's from and so when they were doing the paperwork but i came back i came back always you know i didn't live there live there i came back always so i guess when they were filing the paperwork instead of me signing they put in their own handwriting moved out of the country and they just filed it filed the paperwork like that i i would have thought maybe something like that would have been verbally communicated well i would have thought that if we're police officers and we can find people how hard would it have been for you to reach my mom which is one of my known addresses from when i joined the academy whatever neither here nor there i can't i can't speak on it and again again i don't this is not this is not an attack this is not against um, you know, to be clear, because the one thing that I want to do is go back and work with my agency to help them with this stuff. Like, don't do nobody else the way you did me. Oh, please. This the suicide rates and our suicide epidemic is rising and I want to cease it. Do not make us feel less than worthy because we are like, don't do this to somebody else. You did it to me. Don't do it to somebody else. Mm-hmm. So I want to work with them. So therefore, I don't want to burn any bridges or opportunities with my department. I just feel like we, we got to. We gotta step it up. No, I don't think you're. I don't think you're burning any bridges. To the contrary, I think you deserve. Hell, if we were in front of a bunch of people in this fancy studio that we're in right fancy. now, with, uh, with, with with this huge audience behind <laughs> us, um, I, 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 I would be telling them to give you a round of applause. I don't even think I would need to. Um, for real, though, I mean the the courage, the strength to be sitting here talking about what you're talking about speaks volumes. And I don't think you burnt any bridges. I just think that we in South Florida need to be a little possessive and protective of you and not let you go out of state because we don't want to lose you down here. <laughs> Listen, and I always tell um, I always tell people back home, I actually met with a really good friend, the vice uh, vice president of our FOP. Oh, you know, congratulations to her for getting that position too. Um, she's, she's, she was one of my dear friends um, when I was over there and now she's made, um, you know, vice president, vice president carpenter you know so shout out to her she's amazing i sat down and had a conversation with her and she was like you know bev we we never turned our backs on you and i was like no nah, i know but at the time i didn't see it that way you know and i told her what i'm doing and that i want to help and she's like on board so i want to work with my agency and i've been reaching out to my guys and i've been uh, you know social media is the way of the world so i'm like on facebook friending every officer that i remember working with or even have seen that was from the county because my goal is to have them know that I am an outlet for them to talk to someone. And I did not turn my back on the agency and I know that they did not turn their backs on me. It's had a lot to do with admin and as we know, politics and making things look pretty and polished. And we, Hey, look, I did everything on the checklist when this incident happened. So I'm covered, you know, there's no liability issue here. I took care of Perez the way she should have. No, you, yeah, you checked off your checklist. I literally try to off myself in September, though. But you did your part. But I'm still living as a human. As a human. I'm still dealing with stuff. I'm not a checklist. I'm well, a this human. Is, this is where we have to really 
give credit to those that are in a position to make changes and Absolutely. to do something Absolutely. and actually do it. Um, there's a saying, talk is cheap, and Correct. action speaks volumes. Uh, we've we've seen both sides of this coin. Uh, we, we really have. We've seen police chiefs. We've seen deputy chiefs, captains, lieutenants, undersheriffs, sheriffs, majors, corporals, sergeants. I, I, I mean, the list goes on. We're a small organization. We're really, really small in the grand scheme of things. And Christine and I were talking about this the other day. It's it's absolutely frightening to think about how much we have seen, how much we have heard, how much we have interacted with people from s- small agencies, large agencies, good areas, bad areas. I mean, the numbers speak for themselves. You talked about the suicide rate. Let me throw that out there real quick. It's March 18th, March March 2020, we're not even three complete months in, and the two organizations that we follow for this, and there's not that many, is Shadows Behind the Badge and Blue Help. According to Shadows Behind the Badge, they have 41. According to Blue Help, they have 42. Mm-hmm. In any event... And those if, are just the ones we know about. Correct. Sorry. It, no, you, you're good. In any event, if you think about the fact that we have definitively confirmed over 40 law enforcement officers 40 Mm. and we're not even three months in Mm. for 2020 taking their own lives i mean if you are a part of administration and you don't have some sort of peer support critical incident stress debriefing team critical response team if you have them and you're not checking in with them to make sure they have what they need quite frankly you're wrong I mean, I, I agree. Point blank, I, and something has to change. Something has to change. And another thing that happened um, with me is that my pension was denied. So on top of getting "quote unquote" retired with a mental health disability, my pension was denied. So I got nothing. So I essentially, if you really look at it, I got fired for that day. I was just gonna say it's I almost got, more I like got, you no, lost got, your I, job. I got fired. I essentially got fired for March 13th, 2016, for trying to save his life and the lives of all the officers in that station and the community for trying to save lives where I guess that's doing your job. I got fired for it. And talk about getting kicked when you're down. Yeah. Oh man. It, it doesn't over get, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't get any better, but I, it's, I am at an amazing space now, but it did. The journey was so rough and um, actually did get an attorney and we had to appeal the medical advisory board. There's a doctor on the medical advisory board, which they would never give me his information because I really would like to talk to him, but, and then not in a spiteful way, but just to kind of, not going to beat him up or no, anything, no, right? no, nonviolent. Okay. <laughs> no, but it's like, you know, if you're looking at the DSM five and you're doing all this stuff and that's his job, you know, that's it. But what really do you look into to make this determination on someone's life? Because ultimately everyone was like, she deserves it. She deserves it. But from what I'm being told, this is not even, I don't even know how accurate this is. So I apologize if it's not accurate, but what I'm being told is that, that, that doctor, him or her, I don't even know the gender said, no, she's fine. Like, well, I'm going to de- tell you with, with, without knowing anything, I'm just going to caution you. Um, what I've seen happen, and I'll just be blunt, it's happened to me before. When people tell you that you can't be put in touch with somebody 
and they make that person the bad person and the scapegoat. Mm. Sometimes it's accurate, but other times it's not. It's not. So I, I just... I agree with you. I think it would be beneficial for you to talk to that doctor you know, and you could hear from themselves. I want to talk to I want to talk to them to see what the process is just to kind of get a better understanding and also to maybe help raise some awareness with them like listen, we're not only going through stuff on the job, we're also dealing with personal stuff, financial stress, whatever it may be, relationships that we hate ourselves, um, substance abuse, we're de- we're humans. That do a job, but we're still humans that are going through the same things. I remember responding to calls for service, and I'm like, here I am trying to help this family on a domestic violence case. Meanwhile, I can't hold my stuff together at home. You know what I mean? Like, we're going through stuff. So it's like, how do you determine that I am, that I don't have all these symptoms? How do you know how I sleep at night? How do right. you know that I stopped having the nightmares? How do you know that, Dr. So-and-so? Like, what made you determine that I did not deserve my pension after 10 years of service and trying to save Ja'Kai Colson's life on March 13, 2016? How do you determine that I do not deserve my pension as I tried to, I don't know, off myself in September and had suicidal thoughts two years after? How did you determine this? It's absolutely wild. You know, like, it's I want to know what goes through. Like, how did you get there? But... You know, I ended up also reaching out to the FOP president and I told him I wanted to like, I, I still wanted to fight it. You know, I still wanted because I felt like I deserve what I deserve, you know, and I'm not going to stop. This is why I told you I finally grieved him last year because I've been nothing. As soon as, as soon as I felt, as soon as Ja'Kai left, I knew that it was going to be hard. Anything moving forward and I knew it was going to be hard and I knew that I was going to have to do it without him physically with me. And that was the hardest reality because he was my, he was my muscle. He was my, my teddy bear, you know? And I reached out to the president and I was like, he calls me back. He was like, oh, which retirement check didn't you get uh, this month or that month? And exactly. I just like, wow. I was like, excuse me. Um, what? He's like, yeah, which check didn't you get? You called about a retirement check. Which one didn't you get? I was like, none. Any of them. None of them ever for it's been two years. And I'm like, you have denied me my pension. And he's like, wait, what? And I don't know what it is, so I'm glad that we get to do podcasts now. Look at us. They're so fancy. Well, it's crazy. <laughs> My friend Sam from a uh-huh. neighboring agency referred to this as a platform the other day. And it is. I never thought of it, it to- like that. It totally is because now I guess maybe I'll get some answers. It seems to be like a hidden some reason why because the FOP president gets back to me. But it was very like the conversation was different from which pension did you get? What? You're not being taken care of. Perez, I didn't know to – like weeks later to um yeah so I'll, I'll share some numbers with you i don't know if, if there's anything that we can do wow and i'm like what is going on what something is it behind the some, scenes. there's something behind the scenes that's going on whether it's about me or it's about them i need them to understand that i'm not here it's not me against you it's not me against the police department it's not me against your politics it's all of us against that issue because trust and believe that this situation is going to replicate itself in some way, form, or fashion, whether it's a deadly situation or not. There's going to be an officer that's going to go through something, whether it's on the job or off, that's going to be feeling a certain kind of way and not get the support. And that 42 is going to turn into a 43, into a 45, into a 56. And I'm that pissed, that I don't want that. Well, that's what we need to raise the awareness about. It's not about you. you know, it's not about me. It's about these lives. Stop making it about... What is that issue? What is that issue? I'm not going to fight you about about it, but let's come to a solution. Why, why is this? Listen, that's where you bring up a good point, and you can tell it's so critical because I don't know about up north where you're at. I mean, I've got friends and contacts up there, but down here in Florida, 
it's pretty clear that you were either FOP or PBA, Fraternal Order of Police or Police Benevolent Association. And it's not, as an organization, we have members that are a part of both. So it's not a knock on one or the other. But I can tell you from our organization's perspective, this is one stance where they are both united. You see the PBA and you see the FOP up in Tallahassee united, arguing and pushing and fighting for the same thing about mental health. We've got to do more. And I don't know what else to say. I don't know if it falls on the agencies. I don't know if it's – I can't – I find myself repeating myself for for two years now. I mean, we first started – we've got all our charitable initiatives – we started out for years. Mental health was not a charitable initiative. Mm. Early 2018, we made it a charitable initiative. We opened up the phone lines. We opened up the text messaging, the social media messaging, and we started pushing out that if you need to talk, reach out. Sure. We don't need to know your last name. We don't need no. to know your first name. We don't need to know your agency. We don't need to know your super. We don't care. No. I shouldn't say we don't care, but it's not important to us where you work who you work for, how long you've been on the job. What's important to us is that you feel comfortable talking, venting, getting getting the help you need. That you're human life, going through human emotions, and you need to talk to someone about it. And when you say human, it's it's so common in this profession that people feel the same way. I mean, I can't tell you the guilt, the anger, the sadness, the grieving. So many people feel that same the way, but they think they're on their fatigue. own. Compassion fatigue is a big one. Just being tired from overworked or whatever it is, just that affects everything. And and I want to bring in, in, in this conversation as well my family. You know, I grew up being, you know, not really liking the police. And so for me to be <laughs> like the main police, like the only police officer, you know, I do have um, an uncle who I love dearly who works for the Capitol, but back home. But for the most part, between me and him, like there really wasn't too many, like there isn't, we didn't grow up that way. So for my family to go through what I went through, you know, I remember saying like, oh, you know, my family is never going to go to a police funeral, you know, because I'm going to do what I got to do to go home. Well, guess what? They ended up going to a police funeral. And that was my niece and my nephew and my sister-in-law's first time seeing not just a deceased body but also a funeral experience. That was my niece and my nephew. They were, they're babies. That's their first time. Babies, but not babies, like where they're so small. They were old enough to know what was going on. Oh, they grew and up they, real quick. And they grew, and they knew him, you know. Hmm. My niece used to call him um, J-Dog. Like, she, she loved him. You know, they loved him. And my nephew, like, I remember, I still have the video of my nephew's elementary graduation, and you can hear Ja'Kai you know, E-Money, like screaming because my nephew's name. And he's like, you know, they they fell in love with him just as much, you know. And that was their first funeral. These are kids. That was their first funeral. And that's what they saw. That's what they remembered. Do you know how traumatic that falls on the families? My mom had to see that. And my dad had to see that. My brother, my sister, like my entire family felt felt that, that hurt. And they felt like we have to keep in mind the spouses. So when we hurt, you know, we take that home. And our families deal with that. Our spouses deal with that. Our kids deal with that. Our nieces, our nephews, our everything. So we have to also have support for them. But who do they talk to? You know? So that's why I also created this a platform is because I want to talk to the families as well. I remember my brother said to me after I got, quote, unquote, retired, um, he said to me, man, I can sleep at night now. 
I'm like, what are you talking about? It was like for years while you were working, I couldn't sleep knowing that my little sister was out there. Hmm. Wow. You know, and me and him, we don't, you know, it's my brother. Like we don't really get all mushy gushy like that, but he said it. And I was, it was like, really? Like, I didn't even think that it bothered him. You know, we don't think about stuff like that. I didn't think that it bothered him that he was losing sleep because I'm out here in the streets, but it does. It affects your family. You don't think about that. So, you know, bringing the awareness to that too, we have to heal ourselves in order to heal others, but it starts with us. So Rich, for you to be, you know, the best you, you can be for your family. You got to start with you. For me to be the best me I can be for my family, I got to start with me. And that started with me falling back in love with myself and loving myself again. And now I'm finally there, you know, and now I'm able to love my family and show them, like, thank you all for being there. Actually, when we went to go see Ja'Kai's body, they flew him to Baltimore and they had the flag over him and they had the two, you know, um, our SWAT guys, you know, in their class A's or whatever. I was the first one to approach him, to talk to him. And my really, really good friend, uh, Jamie, who I love, shout out to Jamie, she heard me say to Jakai in his ear, I'll be with you soon. I don't remember that, but she remembers that. She remembers that. And she's the one that went to my sister and, and they created a schedule of a suicide watch. And I didn't even know Wow. that I constantly after Jakai's death, I was staying at my brother's. I couldn't go back to the house that we were at. I was staying at my brother's and I always had family coming in and I'm like, don't they work? Like, why are, why is somebody <laughs> always visiting me? Like, I get it. I went through something, but don't they work? Little did I know that they had put themselves, my sister had created a schedule. So that someone was always with me on a suicide watch. And that's, you know how hard that probably was for my family? Sure. You know? And you think about that now. But you don't think about it at the time. You know? So it's just the awareness of also realizing that. Well, this is why, this is why. It's a community, man. This is why for those in, I can't speak so much about family when as much as I want to touch on relationships. And we're going to do another podcast in in the future. I got to give a little bit of recognition to Emily Nims from uh, the Benjamin yeah. Nims Hero Foundation. Her and Megan are just getting their, their boots off the ground, so yes. to speak, and they're just starting out. But one of the things that they are harping on as an organization is humanizing the profession, mm. including the spouses. Yes, absolutely. And from a, from a relationship perspective, they both know what it's like on the other side of the badge. Yep. And, you know... I, I always I always point out that book uh, Emotional Survival for Law Enforcement mm-hmm. from Dr. Uh, Kevin Gilmartin. It's his book is spot on. I first had it uh, 13 years ago when it was mandatory reading. It's not a switch that you can really turn on and off. We try to. We try to shield our families from what we see. We try to keep it inside. What has helped me the most through everything and it's not a knock on my agency or my previous agency. It's not a knock on anybody really. It's just you have to find out what works for you. What works for me is being able to talk to somebody that I confide in, that I trust, that I feel comfortable talking to. So when I get to a point where I just feel like I want to vent, I vent, and then I move on. And I'm at a place where I've never been happier, healthier. I've, I've never felt better. You do have to really look out for that compassion fatigue. You have to know how much you can take. You have to sometimes say no. It's okay to say no. It's okay to shut things off. You have to. But... We have got to do something about these numbers. When you look at over 40 first responders taking their own lives in the first three months of the year. I mean, it's just, I I don't know. I think we have to continue having conversations like this for sure. I think the agencies that are doing things right, 
maybe when they have these big conferences and these big meetings and other agencies talk to other agencies, they can compare and, and discuss it because these are topics that are I don't think are discussed openly enough. They're not, but I think we're on a wave. So I think we got lucky because we are on a wave. And my sister always says, you know, she's like, I think this was what you were always meant to do. I just wish that there would have been another way of the world showing you that. Um, because I didn't know that this was what I was ultimately meant to do, that to be a voice, you know, for my brethren and to silence their suffering. That's what I'm meant to do. And that's what I'm going to do. But I didn't know, you know, obviously. And for me, it's like the awareness of being vulnerable and the awareness of if I go home, like, I don't want to talk to somebody because you're not going to understand. Guess what? The first time I talked about this was in a room after the shooting at Parkland of women that were either parents or faculty or something related to the shooting. These women, none of them had law enforcement background, nothing. And I remember being in a group with them, with the Center for Mind Body Medicine that came down here to give some relief to Broward County. And I'm sitting in this group of women that I don't even know. I didn't want to share because that's very vulnerable for me. And I'm like, and this is my, this is my, like a very personal story. Right. All these women opened up and shared a personal story of themselves without knowing each other, without knowing me. And I looked at myself and I said, whoa, who am I? You got them to open up. Who, well, who am I to sit here and be like, I'm, I'm not saying anything past, past. Like, who are you when they're opening up to you? You know, you're no better than them. You're just like them. It doesn't matter that they're whatever race or however old or whatever gender. These people have opened up and shared vulnerably to a group of people that they didn't know. What makes you think you can't do it? Because you're a police officer? No. But your presence there, you having that conversation, you you being receptive. And me being everybody re- opened me up. Me being receptive. And then it also gave me the power to realize you don't have to be a police officer to understand hurt. You don't have to be a police officer to understand trauma. You don't have to be a police officer to be sad, to be depressed, to go through stuff. Your situation is different from what you brought home that made you upset that day. But guess what? Your wife, husband, or whoever probably had a situation at work that made them upset too. So you guys can talk because you have that hurt in common. That's why it's that vulnerability. But we always like, no, I'm not going to talk to you. You're not going to understand. Everybody understands hurt and pain. Everybody's going to go through something. So I can tell you, everybody, everybody understands hurt and pain. And the only thing I'm going to say, and I'm not going to disagree with you, mm-hmm. but what I'm going to say is you have to find the balance. There's a balance between something bothering you, having that conversation with your significant other, because chances are they probably see that something is bothering mm-hmm. you. But at the same time, from personal experience and then hearing from countless other people who have had similar experiences, you can't expect somebody, you can't have a conversation about being a paramedic to somebody that's never been a paramedic and expect them to understand. You can't be a firefighter going into a blaze of fire, putting out a fire and seeing something bad and expect somebody to understand that hasn't done that. Agreed. So there's a balance. So yeah, there's a balance. But what I'm saying is if I come home super upset at something and say I'm a police officer and I'm dating, I don't know, a doctor, whatever, librarian, He's not going to understand, but at least I can tell him, you know what? I'm, I'm sad. Something happened today. That's enough. That's enough. I don't need to go into detail about the, the codes and the police jargon. He's not going to understand that stuff. Right. I get that. Tactics but and protocol. He's not going to understand no. that. But what he is going to understand is that I'm sad. Right. That's it. I don't need to tell him he don't because if he comes and he's a doctor and he starts telling me about doctor procedures, I, I don't know what none of that <laughs> means. But if he tells me, 
we lost someone today. I'm sad. Do you know what I'm going to do as a spouse that he was able to even be vulnerable enough to say that support. to me as a man? I'm going to support him and I'm going to look for groups for for doctors that may have be de- that deal with PTSD from losing patients. Now I can help you. But if you just come home and you're doing stuff, actions, like angrily or whatever, and now we're getting into arguments because you're dishing off that energy on me. I can't help you if I don't know how. What are you mad? Are you angry? Are you sad? Are you depressed? Are you, I can see it, but when you talk about it and when you say it and you're impeccable with your words, it makes it more real and now you believe it because I'm going to need you to believe that you need help before I can help you. So I can tell you all day, Rich, I can tell you're sad. Rich, I can tell, Bev, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. Rich is going to have to come home and say, Bev, I'm sad. And that's it. I don't need to know about the call and the, you know, the codes. I'm sad. It's that easy. That conversation is what I'm saying. We're all unified and human and having those emotions. Now, the particulars of what? Then you go into that special field of help, of course. But just the I'm sad. Just the, just the little bit. No, I completely agree. I, I get it. Um, let me give you two things just to wrap this up. Uh, I want to touch on two quick things. First thing is I want you to... I'm not going to tell you to agree with me, but I want you to acknowledge what I think you're going to agree with me on. Based on your experience and the amount of people you've spoken with that, you know, your people are different from our people. And I think that we would both agree. I just want to hear you say it to the people that maybe have tried. They've reached out. They've spoken with somebody professionally, not professionally. It doesn't matter. And it didn't go well. Would you... My advice and what our organization says is keep trying. Don't give up. Mm. You you make yourself vulnerable. You open up to somebody, whether it's a therapist, a clinician, or a, a coworker, and it sucked. You had a horrible experience. Mm. It didn't go well. well. Don't give up. It's almost like dating. You know, <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to say swipe left and swipe say right. Swipe. But, Just keep swiping. But, it, but it's almost like dating. I mean, you, you can... <laughs> I spoke to somebody a while back and we just, we jived, we clicked, Mm. we got, I felt comfortable. Our organization, you know, we put together a list of over a hundred therapists and we narrowed that list down to 12 of people Mm. that passed our criteria. And that's just one example. So I I just, I want you to touch on briefly telling somebody don't give up when they they put themselves out there and they have a bad experience. I think they need to keep trying and keep finding until they find somebody that works for them. Would you agree? Powerful. Absolutely. Rich, if I wouldn't have kept trying, I wouldn't be here in front of you right now. Wow. Wow. Because I kept trying. I had to. You have to find the that why in that fight. Either it's with it starts with you or it starts with your family or something. And then it needs to get to you. But you keep, oh, absolutely keep trying. Because we're here, you know, as you said, you guys are here. Um, you're a resource. I'm a resource. We're here. So please keep trying. Please, please keep trying. There's always someone that that can be there for you that you can connect with or talk to. Absolutely, 100%. Keep trying. All right. I appreciate that. And then before I wrap it up, I don't want to... I don't want to put you on blast or steal your thunder or anything, but you're doing some big things. There, <laughs> do you want to give a sneak peek, a little sure. tidbit, something yeah, about what you've got going you. on? Yeah, Absolutely. Sure. Um, so thank you to Broward County overall for being so welcoming with open arms. I just think that at the time my county wasn't ready, but I think that they soon will be. So I'm looking forward to working with them. I miss my guys, my girls. Um, so now what I'm doing now is I'm an advocate for mental health with first responders, and I am starting – 
um, a nonprofit myself, which that is to come, but I'm sure you can add my information somewhere. And um, what I want to do is create a platform to have all the agencies come together and I'll just leave it there. It'll be for mental health and it'll be for first responders and our families. Um, As of right now, I am a wellness coach. I do mind-body skills groups with first responders and veterans as well. And I also am available for anyone that wants to just peer support talk. Um, I do peer support for the peer support. I just finished doing a training with the Fort Lauderdale Police Department. They are amazing and up to some great things. I've done PTSD. Um, I, saw, I saw a picture on one of your social media yeah. pages with Fort Lauderdale. Oh, they're, they're amazing. You have man. come Shout a long way. Yeah. A long way. Thank look you. at Look at where you are with yeah. that. That was huge. And, you know, and I'm getting asked to go to different departments here, different cities to present awesome. my training, to let them know my journey and how to heal. I also enforce meditative mindfulness practices to live in the present, the here and the now. That's what saved my life breathing, which is why we started our segment that way. Um, so I help officers with that and I make it really catered to the officer audience, first responders, vets, and families as well. Um, but with that being said, I also do presentations, motivational presentations, and I talk on the panels. We have a conference coming up in May that I'll be on the panel for, um, no, that I'll actually be doing an entire training for, but I also do different trainings for peer support teams, all over Broward County. So please reach out. I'm more than open and willing to do it. And again, we do incorporate those mindfulness meditative tools and techniques for the here and now. No, no pills, no substances. No, it's all within you. So thank you for letting me share that. And you can share my information. That's awesome. Yeah, thank you. And, and if anybody needs to or wants to get in touch with Bev, we will absolutely uh, link her information together. And feel free, shoot us a text, 702-527-1290, or just send us an email, info at teamsouthflorida.org, or message us, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and we will absolutely connect you guys. Oh, uh, and if I may, go one, ahead, more absolutely. Thing. one more thing. This is also for, um, we always fail to recognize, the, not always, but sometimes uh, the retired officers as well, because what happens when you get retired or terminated, <laughs> you end up until you get to go through a healing journey, you feel like you've lost your identity. You're not a part of something anymore. And that contributes to your feelings of worthlessness. So please reach out to us, to Team South Florida, or to me, if you as well, you are still supported. You're still, you're more than just your badge. You know, you're human and you, you know, you went through what you went through and you're valid in feeling how you're feeling. So it's also for sworn, not sworn, um, because the suicide rates are, you know, also are for the officers that are retired. So. I'll tell you, speaking uh, to the re- retired, some of our most active members are those who are retired. Not only do they tend to have more time to give yeah. back and volunteer. But they know. They have the experience. Experience, man. They know. Big time. Yeah, so thank you. Thank you for bringing that up. Yeah. Uh, all right. In, in closing, in tradition, what we typically do is trying to prove when we say we will never forget that they're not just words that are heard at funerals and things of that nature. And when we have a podcast episode on that particular day, I look back and I try to find if there have been any law enforcement officers that were killed in the line of duty on that day. I was a little bit taken back when I looked up today's date, March 18th, for the state of Florida. We lost three 
law enforcement officers on March 18th from three separate agencies. So just being really brief here, March 18, 2012, the Florida Department of Corrections, Sergeant Reuben Thomas III, was stabbed to death by an inmate at the Columbia Correctional Institution. He was simply checking on an inmate when he was attacked. He was stabbed in the neck several times by the inmate, who was armed with a shank. The inmate was serving a life sentence for murdering a college student, then struck another officer in the eye with a sock filled with a heavy item before being taken into custody. The inmate was subsequently convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to death approximately one year later. Unfortunately, Sergeant Thomas was transported to the hospital where he succumbed to his wounds. He served with the Florida Department of Corrections for six years and is survived by his young daughter and fiancé and his parents. Going back a little bit longer, March 18, 1941, police officer Denson Hudson of the Epoch, uh, Police Department was shot and killed while attempting to stop a robbery in progress. He encountered two suspects who opened fire on him with a rifle back in 1941. He was killed. He had served for just one year. He was survived by his wife and five children. And then going back a little bit further, March 18, 1906, the Pensacola Police Department lost police officer William Burnham. Officer Burnham was shot and killed after responding to a call of shots fired. When Officer Burnham arrived, one suspect shot him in the chest. He chased the suspect for half a block despite being shot in the chest before he ultimately died. Officer Burnham ser served with the Pensacola Police Department for two years and was survived by his wife and child. Our hearts go out to these officers, their agencies, their families, and as Bev can absolutely attest to, no matter how many years later, there's certain dates that stick with us forever. So on that note, hope everybody has a good day. And Bev, I can't thank you enough for joining uh, us today. Thank you. And one more thing, just a happy belated birthday to Jakai. He would have been 33 yesterday. Oh, man, the timing. Mm -hmm. Happy belated birthday. Thank you. Thank you.